once people realize that you know what you're doing and you're able to help them go from point A to point B, it becomes less important that you have an accent. It becomes less important that you're a person of color or where you come from because deep down, people really want someone that can help them. Hey folks, welcome to the show. Our guest on today's show is Charles Osuji. He is the managing partner of Osuji and Smith Lawyers based out of Calgary, Alberta. Charles and I engage in a very candid conversation around his growing up in Nigeria, his legal training and eventually relocation to Canada. We take a deep dive into his journey from an articling student to becoming the owner of Osuji and Smith Lawyers. Charles shares a lot of life lessons that I am sure you will find very insightful. So get ready and let's dive in. So Charles, thank you very much and welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Stanley. Thank you. No, it's um, it's really great to, to have you. And Charles, you and I haven't met one on one. This is a, actually the very first time that we will be speaking, but I have been following your story. I have been reading, you know, on your journey so far and your successes. And I think your story will definitely motivate some of our listeners today. And I am very, very stoked to have you on our platform. Thank you. It's a a privilege to be here. Thank you. Okay, Charles. So I want to take you back to where you were born. So the first question I'm going to ask you, I like to start this way is, where were you born? I was born in the eastern part of Nigeria, specifically Amibo in Nigeria, but I'm from Olu Imo State, Nigeria, and born into a family of 10. I'm the seventh child, Hmm. so grew up with the fortune of having a lot of mentors and role models in in the place of my siblings. Uh, My immediate older sibling was already 11 years old by the time I was born, so. Wow. So I had that privilege of, you know, having people that I looked up to growing up, you know, and that, that is a beautiful thing, especially when you have older ones that have the right head on, the sh- on their shoulders. It was very easy for me not to stray away from, you know, the path that they've created for the younger ones. Fantastic. So how was experience growing up in a big family? Well, good experience, bad experience, pros and cons. Of course, the, the, the good side of it is you have a lot of attention you know as a new child after many years Mm. of my parents not having any children um i think i've inquired into the reason for the delay and i heard that my mom by age 26 my mother had already had six children wow by the way she was married at 14. (laughs) wow And after having six children, she started high school. Amazing. And so she didn't want to get pregnant during that time. So she did high school. She went to nursing school. I heard that in the nursing school, she didn't want anybody to know that she was married, let alone having children. And it was actually prohibited for someone to have kids and be in that missionary nursing school. So she kept... The, the fact that she has had kids away from the proprietors and, and the teachers 
So for that period of time, high school, nursing school, and all of that took about 19 years. And then she came back and she had me, right? So the benefit, of course, is having people I looked up to. Um, the, the other side of it is not having a voice in the family. <laughs> You know, growing up in those family meetings, uh, I would just cower somewhere in the living room, just taking notes. I, I did not share my opinion. I did not speak up. Right. So I also had that growing up. Only when I became a lawyer, and even now, when we have family meetings, before it gets my turn to talk, right? <laughs> the decision, the decision must have been made, right? <laughs> yeah. So that syndrome super resist. <clears throat> Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm sure um, having all the siblings, nobody messed with you around in the community, right? No, no, not at all. No, no. Fantastic. Okay, so um, you did go to university in Nigeria as well. Could you tell us yes. a bit about that? So I went to Imo State University, um, you know, where, which is in Imo State as well. I did the university side of my legal journey it took about six years of training mm. and then after that i went to law school for one year in nigeria you have this hybrid system where you would do university for five six years and then do law school for one year i did my law school in um, in Nugu campus for those who don't know you have to do law school and graduate from law school before you're called to the nigerian bar is that correct yes very nice and so you finished law school, you're a, a brand new minted lawyer now. So yes. did you practice in Nigeria at all? Or are you just like, okay, I'm done. I'm getting out of here. So my journey is a bit unique. By the time I was first, second year in the university, I had visited Canada. Okay. Right. So I had the opportunity of visiting Canada once or twice every year during vacation. So I would come here, I would hustle in warehouses and factories and I go home. I was a big boy. I can imagine. <laughs> Come back with the dollars. Oh my goodness. I'll go home with like $4,000. I was like 19. Wow. You know? Yeah. So I told my parents not to bother with my, my tuition. I could take care of myself. So I was doing that, but my parents, my family, they wanted me to finish in Nigeria. And after my law school, I also did my youth service. They want me to have the entire experience. Okay. Right? For, for your listeners, youth service is a program undertaken by graduates for a year after graduation. Yes. So I did youth service. They posted me to a Bonnie State. You know, Bonnie State. That's on the southeast. Back to like, yeah, yeah. And I think I was there for five, six months. Um, then I had to run back to Canada because the experience wasn't that great. You know okay. how it is. You know they they are not intentional in in posting professionals, right? They posted me to a local government. <laughs> um, yeah, a local government area building. There wasn't really much to do there. You know, you go there, you play scrabble with a security man for two hours, and then you go home. So I did that for like a week. I was like, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> this is a full, full-fledged lawyer. This is a full-fledged lawyer. So I looked around the town and found a law firm. I told the guy to take me on, you know, without any pay. I just wanted the experience. And every morning he would bundle us in, in his small car and take us to court. And then we spend the entire day in court. 
mm. um, asking for an adjournment. It was, it was, it was, it was insane. After a few months, I, I couldn't take it any longer. I had to move back permanently to Canada, and that was in 2011. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. So you moved to Canada in 2011. Yes, yes. Hmm. So would you say that um, this was always part of the plan? To, it was. It was it always was. part of the plan. It okay. was part of the plan. It was part of the plan. And, and I had that at the back of my mind that I would ultimately practice in Canada. But I needed to check out the boxes in Nigeria just to make sure that, you know, you never know what the future holds, right? Mm. Um, I had to do all of that, you know, the university, law school, youth service um, before um, coming to Canada. Yeah, it was always part of the plan. Beautiful. Okay. For, for some of our listeners who would be listening and saying, oh, it was so easy for Charles to just up and go to Canada. <laughs> so I could probably do the same. Do you want yeah. to walk us through how you were actually able to make Canada happen? Because you have to um, go through a visa process, right? You have to yeah. either have a permanent residency or something. Yeah. So what's your, what's your, your story? In that so I was fortunate um, back in 2006, I think there was a policy in place that um, anyone here could sponsor their parents. And then the dependents of the parents could tag along. So my oldest brother, Dr. Joseph Osuji, sponsored my parents back in 06 and i was still a teenager then so i tagged along with my younger brother so that was my first visit so i just visited and then i went back so every year i would come here for a few months just to keep my residency active so immediately my youth service was coming to an end and i moved permanently so i didn't um you know go through the rigor of visa visa application because I already had a PR. Oh wow. That that's great. So for you then it, it wasn't like um a typical up and pack your things, don't know what you're going to and just go. It, it was still. Tell us about that. The only person I knew here was my brother and a few other family members. And that's about it, right? The The reality is I had to uproot myself from Nigeria. Um, I had spent my formative years in Nigeria. I, you know, I had my legal training in Nigeria. All of my professional relationships were all built in Nigeria. And coming here, all I had uh, was just a handful of holiday members. Right? So... I still had to, you know, start from the scratch to reenact myself and and connect to a few people. We're going to talk about the, the steps that I took to get myself acquainted with how things, you know, were run here, connecting myself and building um, a professional network from the scratch. I really wanted to put you there to see if it was easy, because I know no matter how it is, moving from one country to another, it's difficult, right? Because yeah. like you said, yeah. you had built all your network, your education, everything was back home in Nigeria. But now all of a sudden, right. you're in a new country where things work differently. Yeah. So tell me, what were the cultural shocks you experienced? You know, back in Nigeria, you would um, 
leverage the connections of your parents or your older brothers or your uncles and the idea of you reaching out to a stranger and striking a conversation or connecting with them was very alien to me and there wasn't anything like formal mentorship mentorship really was having a relationship with your professors teachers and uncles and and your uncles connections right you needed something you talk to someone in the family the person connected to someone that was the experience back home but here i realized that number one i was on my own and number two i needed to build these connections from the scratch by myself mm. so i had to connect to a mentoring organization that catered specifically to internationally trained lawyers it's called cryac i also volunteered with a few organizations and i started getting to understand how you bridge the gap and break the ice in this in these connections another culture shock was I don't have to put this Stanley. Yeah, I remember my first few weeks working in a factory and you are having a, a conversation with a coworker, right? Maybe d- during the break. Yeah. And, you know, the conversation is going so fine and you think you've met a friend. And then immediately <laughs> Immediately it was time to go. The so-called friend is never saying hello to you. Everybody just disappears. You know, so I quickly realized that people put up this veneer of friendship connection and, and there's some artificiality to it. Mm. And it doesn't go beyond that. You know, where we come from, if somebody doesn't like you, you know right away the person doesn't like you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's no sugar coated. From a distance, you can smell it, you can smell the disdain. Like coming from the other person. And if somebody likes you, you know that the person likes you. Absolutely. But here, I realized that the fact that somebody's smiling at you and, and opening the door to the more for you and all that, it doesn't go beyond that. It's just situational niceness or situational. Hmm. Yeah, whatever it is, was just situational. So that was one thing I noticed, right? Then I also noticed that um, you could actually have access to people that hold um, very important positions simply by emailing them randomly or sending them a message on, on LinkedIn. You know, back home, you would have to go through someone to go through someone to go through someone and good luck, you know, meeting <laughs> with the, the ultimate target. But here you could just send out an email and boom, the person replies, you know, so breaking the ice was very easy. Charles, what you mentioned about networking, it was something we really talked about with the previous guest on the show. We talked a lot about networking and how that helps in terms of job hunting. But you're absolutely right. It's different from how it is back yeah, in Nigeria. Yeah. It's a whole it's a whole different ball game. And then, I mean, you talk about uh, the fact that people could smile nope. at you. It doesn't mean that you're friends. So just be careful. <laughs> just be careful. Then I expect to see them tomorrow. Like, hey, what's happening? Long time in the no, bed. No. no. Yeah, they may never recognize you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, those are those are very powerful examples. So, Charles, thanks for that. So, let's delve into mm-hmm. into your journey with law in Canada. Yeah. Now, you're a Nigerian trained lawyer. You you did mention you you connected yeah. and volunteered with some organizations. So, tell me, how did you go from being a foreign trained lawyer to becoming a lawyer licensed to practice in Canada, in Alberta specifically? Right. Right. So there are three stages to the journey. 
And the first stage, you have to write um, the NCA exams. Okay, what's that? National Committee on Accreditation. So this is a body that assesses your qualifications, your transcript from law school, transcript from the university, and tells you how many courses you need to write. Okay. And if you pass those exams, then your degree will be deemed equivalent to the degree someone obtains from a university here. Okay. Once you finish the NCA exams, you will then article. In other words, you find internship. Okay. And that presents a unique challenge to newcomers here because it's like finding work. Imagine. Yeah, it's like finding work and you're competing with folks that went to school here, folks that have lived all their lives here with all of these organic connections all over the place. And then you're more or less convincing someone that doesn't know where you went to school, doesn't understand your grading system, doesn't know the people that know you, the people that went to school with you, you're convincing them to take it on as a student at law, right? And this is why it's a big deal for me to have students in my firm every year. You know, if uh. if I could have a thousand students a year, I would go for it. Uh. I always stretch the maximum I can under the applicable um, law society rules. So after the article, you write the bar exams. Okay. You know, the bar exams are structured differently depending on the province. If you're in Ontario, you write the Ontario bar. If you're in Alberta, you write what they call CPLED. Um, the exams are written alongside the articling okay. process. So while you're articling, you're writing the exams. Mm. After that, then you get called to the bar. Interesting. Yeah, you're looking at about two years or so, yeah, for, for a timeline. How did it go for you? And some of the challenges you faced. I mean, a fresh lawyer coming from Nigeria, I don't think finding an articling position was easy. Or even writing the um, equivalency exam, the very first one. How did you navigate all that? Yeah, I didn't find any issues with the exam. Okay. You know, the Nigerian system toughens you up, right? (laughs) You know, sometimes you wonder whether the system is structured to make you fail in Nigeria instead of make you pass. So here, the NC exams were open book, meaning that you go with your books. And, and I didn't quite understand that. <laughs> For a very long time, I thought it was a trick, one of those monumental tricks that <laughs> you take your books to the exam, they be like, gotcha, you know. <laughs> so I studied the exam as if they were a closed book. You know, I was reading as if I, I, I wouldn't have access to the materials. And I took some time away from my hustle so I could focus on preparing for the exams. So I, find the, I found the exam very easy comparatively. Um, okay. Yeah, because I read, I was prepared for them. Then for articles, I also got lucky with articles. Many people would spend a year, six months, a year and a half, sometimes two years to find a place to article. Uh, for me, it took me about two months. Mm. And because I, I was very aggressive, even before I finished my exams, I started connecting with people. I joined this mentoring organization. They connected me to the executive director who became a mentor. And he started connecting me to many people. So I met with Mr. Okafo, from Mr. Okafo to Mr. Tony Mera, Mr. Tony Mera to Mr. Smith. And that was how the connection happened. Mm. Wow. You know, a day before the interview with um, Mr. Smith, I had a mock interview with my mentor. Again, one of the French benefits of mentorship. And Mr. Rondo, you know, sat me down and told me, look, Mr. Smith is not going to ask you for uh, a regurgitation of 
the legislation that you've come across and all that. He's not going to ask you any law-related questions. He's going to get to know whether he likes you or not, oh. if he can work with you. So what I did was I immediately started talking about the things that connected me with Mr. Smith. He was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. Oh. Um, he grew up in a small town. You know, I grew up from a small town. I am a Christian. He is a Christian. So we ended up talking about the things that connected us together. And that conversation morphed into dinner. And I think the conversation started at five o'clock and it ended at midnight that day. Look at that. Wow. Yeah. So that was my first and only interview. And that's the firm that I own today. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those who do not know, you will hear yeah. this story. How Charles went from an adequate yeah. student to becoming the managing partner and owner of Osuji and Smith. It's coming. The story is coming, yeah. so just wait for it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know. Wow. Yeah. That was how you know, the, the journey was for me. The exams themselves were as difficult. Uh, the connections and all that. Those people that I met along the way, they made the journey much easier for me. There's something that you're hitting that I'm really, really agreeing with. And that's the connections that you made Absolutely. along the way. I think that is a very critical yeah. factor in your success as an yes. immigrant to yes. a new country. Your ability to connect yes. to people and to actually build meaningful relationships from there. Those are the people who yes. are going to help you along the way to yes. achieving yes. your dreams. Charles, before we go any further, there's something you've mentioned a few times, and I really want to make sure we get to that part, and that's the hustle. So I can imagine coming into Canada, you have to hustle a lot. You probably have to do multiple jobs. I'm not sure, but I think it's important for us to, you know, highlight that part of your journey so people understand that you don't just come and things are a bed of roses and all of a sudden you're doing so well. So tell us a bit about your hustle. Good question. You know, an interviewer told me the other day she couldn't believe that I hustled. Looking at my fresh face, I was like, what the heck are you talking <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what the heck? Are... Behind the freshness, <laughs> behind the freshness, there's a hustle. <laughs> what the heck are you talking about? There was a time I had over 10 T4s in one year. If you drive southeast of Calgary, you see all those industrial, yep. an industrial part of Calgary, you see all those yep. factories and all that. There was a time I was counting. I worked there, I worked there, I worked there, I worked there. Just on <laughs> one road, I could count about seven. <laughs> I could count about seven wow. factories I, I worked at. So what my strategy was to register with, um, I registered with agencies, right? Okay. You know, and, and they would call me for work. Sometimes I would have to go to them early in the morning. Some days I would go there as early as 4 a.m. in the morning. Wow. I, I worked at over maybe 50 factories. Wow. That was at the time I was working three shifts, morning, afternoon, night. The one thing that was keeping me awake was Red Bull. At some point, Red Bull stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I would catch an hour's sleep in between shifts when I was on the train. There was a time I slept off on the train. You know, the train took me to the end of the city and back to the other end of the city and then back again to the end of the city. <laughs> in one interview I granted, I was telling them that I attended an interview and I, and I slept off at the interview because I had not had any sleep. Wow. 
for for a few days. So I did, you know, flip burgers, um, moved houses. I even helped, you know, draw marks on the on the streets. I, I did it all. But little did I know that I was preparing myself for something greater and something bigger. You know, I was building capacity. Mm. Right now, I have nine, 10 lawyers in the firm, 15 employees. There's no challenge that comes my way that I can overcome. You know, when I look back where I'm coming from, I'm so grateful for each day that I'm in this position. Mm. So my history gives me a fresh outlook to the privilege I I currently enjoy. If you've not had some experiences, you may not really appreciate what you have. Mm. And then the fact that I go to bed at night, I am so thankful for that. Mm. Because for so long, I would finish my night shift. I'll hop on the train to go for my morning shift. And I'm looking at the folks on the train. Their faces are so fresh. And I'm so envious that they had a, a good night. Oh, good night's sleep. Yeah. Now, some of them, the, the faces are so dull and gloomy. I'm like, you guys should be happy you guys had a good night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So the, the fact that, you know, I can... I, I make a good living. I'm helping a lot of people. And at the same time, I go to bed at night is a huge blessing for me. So my history gives me that very fresh perspective um, and approach to work. I did all of it. I built capacity. And Mr. Smith, one year into working with him, he he couldn't understand the energy. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, Charles, how come you're all over the place? You're active in your community, you church, you play soccer, you work seven days a week, um, you're bringing the most amount of money to the firm. And you still have a smile on your face. And I ask him, what exactly are you talking about? Because I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> wow. Right. So, and, and not just my history here. Uh, at age seven, I started living with one of my brothers, the Reverend Father. He's a Catholic priest. Um, and he raised me as a, like a military man. I didn't watch any cartoons. I didn't watch any TVs. I didn't play. It was all, either I was reading or I was sleeping. Mm. Those, those are my routine. And I did that for two, three years as young as seven. So, you know, as much as I hated him then, I love him now because he, you know, he gave me from a very early stage what it meant to have focus and to be disciplined. Wow. Yeah. So that, there's always um, the, the story behind the glory. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I have heard people who, who've done several jobs, you know, get in here to pay the bills while you work on your on your goals. But Charles, yeah. I can tell you that you've broken all records. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the important thing is this, though. You said those experiences helped you build character, helped you build capacity. Yeah. And when you eventually transitioned from all that, to what you really wanted to do, that's practice law, that came through. And the partner at the time, Mr. James Smith, you know, asked where yeah. is all this energy coming from? Because he just could not understand it. So today, he doesn't understand it. And sometimes I don't understand it myself. But, you know, when you walk a mile in somebody's shoes, you might begin to understand. You know, I, I have a crazy, crazy schedule. Um, my May is completely booked. 
and I have seven junior lawyers in the firm and I review their work every day. Before anything goes out, I look at it. You know, it's a lot of work, but to me, it is not because I am so grateful to have the opportunity that I have. And I've made mentorship a, a cornerstone of my practice. You know, every month there is a student that is graduating from my firm. And because I know firsthand what it means for uh, a man like Mr. Smith in his 70s to give a young black boy from Nigeria an opportunity. Mm. He didn't know what my what my law school was all about. He didn't look at my grades. He didn't know who my parents were. He didn't know who my siblings were. He just gave me a shot and gave me an opportunity. And it worked out for him. He is a retired happy man you know he Beauty. you know he shows up to the office every day and he tells me how proud of me he is i've taken the firm to a different level you know national recognition and all of that and i tell him that he deserves what he's getting it's difficult for a lawyer to sell their practice especially selling a practice to someone that you have a relationship with mm. and and you still have a place in that in that practice. I told him that his name will remain on the door for as long as possible. That's why I still have Smith. Oh, I see. Okay. Because he did what so many people would not do. You know, they hear you have an accent. They don't know what school you went to. They don't even want to touch it. They, they'd rather go with someone there right. that is somehow familiar. Right. You know, but he defied all odds and and took a chance on me and here we are um so that experience is is the driver for some of the decisions i make giving people opportunity you know we're actually looking at buying a new desk and squeezing that desk in one tiny corner that's available in the basement so wow. that more students <laughs> could have a place to stay and, and learn right um mr smith if you ever happen to listen to this podcast you are our hero yeah. you are a good, man, a good and man and we say thank you thank you for taking a chance on yeah. charles so we say thank you mr smith now yeah. charles yeah. let's talk about that journey how you Mm-hmm. An Atticlean student went all the way to become a partner first and then buying over the firm when Mr. Mm-hmm. Smith decided to retire. How did you do that? And that was under a space of how many years did you do that? From when I became a partner to buying the firm, I think under, under a year. Under a year? Yeah, under a year, yeah. Tell us, from when you became an Atticlean student to you became a partner, how, how did all that go? So I became an accident student in 2013 and then became a lawyer in 2014, then became a partner two years later in 2016, and then brought him out sometime in 2017. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, let's, let's take a step backwards because the way it sounded, it sounded like it's so easy, right? <laughs> You're making it sound like it's, like it's so easy. Yeah. Tell us a bit about, about that journey. I mean, how did you do that? How did you go all that way in the space of, what, three years? How did all that happen? Yeah. Charles? You know, I've asked myself that question a few times too. You know, know, whatever the juju is coming from, it must be be very potent. (laughs) Well, I I attribute the journey to so many things. I'm fortunate to, you know, have met Mr. Smith. He's a good 
man, Mr. Smith believes in me more than I believe in myself. Mm. To be honest, right from day one, Mr. Smith was like, you're going to be one of the top lawyers in Canada. I'm like, are you, what are you saying? So when these accolades are flowing in, he was not shocked at all. I was like, I told you. Wow. And then I also have my mentor, Mr. Rondo, and I have my oldest brother, Dr. Suji, right? So I have these folks who are at least 25 years older than I am, if not 30. People that have been there, done that, they, they, they can see 10 years ahead of me. So at each step of the way, I had every reason to say no to each opportunity that came my way, to be very honest with you. You know, I have the accent, I have the age, I have the color, I have the heritage, I have the fact that I'm an immigrant, so all of those boxes were there. Mm. And I could have easily, easily hidden under the cover of any of these um, hurdles or obstacles. And nobody would question me, you know? Everybody would say, well, you had to, the decision made sense. Uh, for instance, when the opportunity to buy the firm came about, I thought it was a joke. I, I thought that whoever brought that up would just kill the idea right away. You know, so every part of me refused it. Uh, then I spoke to these people in my life, and they were telling me that it was a good opportunity. Mm. You know, so if they were saying so, I had to believe them, and I, and I took a chance. You know, it happens to be one of the best decisions I've ever made. So having a, a tribe of supporters, I keep saying that, having those tribal supporters around you, people that are older in terms of experience and, and preferably age, people that have been there, having those people behind you to pick you up when you fall mm. or to even catch you before you fall, mm. you know, is very, very critical. And I can tell you that I would attribute some of my decisions that I made um, to, those, to those people. When I took over the firm, no, people didn't hear about Smith Law Office. People didn't know about it. Um, it was more or less a one-man shop. Now we have about 10 lawyers in the firm, right? So we went from a one-man shop to, to 10 lawyers in a very short period of time because I now know that some of the things that we fear don't exist, really. Hmm. You know, and that is one thing that is holding a lot of newcomers from, you know, making a mark in the sense of time. They tend to think small and they tend to not take risks. You know, and it makes sense. If you've left your comfort zone to come to a country, you don't want to screw it up. You want to play it safe. Mm. work for someone save buy a house and to be fair I wanted to play safe I just wanted to be an associate do my thing go home this opportunity came about I was like what okay I should really look into this yeah so overcoming the fears having a tribe of supporters and and having having faith in yourself very very important Um, if you don't have faith in your abilities you're going to go so far you're not going to go very far Mm. and i say this all the time integrity is critical very important not just because i'm a lawyer whatever it is integrity is important um a a year in to my relationship with mr smith i had access to the office's account i became a signatory to the account if he had any reason to question my integrity we wouldn't be having a conversation of taking over the firm and buying him out. That's true. That wouldn't have happened. And he knew that I was focused on important things. 
when he hired me, I wasn't expecting him to pay me, to be very honest. I've been working 13, 14 hour shift in warehouses. I just wanted to get out of that environment, mm. find my foot in the door and learn. Mm. And then he told me that he was going to pay me. I was like, okay. I was shocked because at the back of my head, I was focused on learning because I knew that you learn and you begin to add value to people's lives. The rewards follow. Mm. And, I, and I've had a few people that could not make it to work for me because I realized that they don't have the right head on their shoulders. I had this girl that I made an offer to and she wanted me to add extra, what, extra $200 a month, you know, and I asked her why. She said, oh, she just bought a house and she wants to be able to cover her mortgage. And I thought she was joking because many people would want to article for free. And she meant it. At that point, I realized that this person did not have the value system that is consistent with my values. She was not hungry. Mm. And she's the type that would be focusing on making money, even though she needed to learn a lot about practice. You know, she didn't make the cut. Yeah, so having integrity, focusing on the right value system, you know, adding value um, to people's lives, those are the things that made me stand out. And I realized that once people realize that you're... You, you know what you're doing and you're able to help them go from point A to point B, it becomes less important that you have an accent. Mm-hmm. It becomes less important that you're a person of color or where you come from because deep down, people really want someone that can help them. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Charles, it's an amazing story. Your journey definitely inspires all. I, I read about you, you, know, you. On, and I'm like, wow. Look at what Charles has achieved in so short a time. And um, that's one reason I really wanted to have you on this show to share the story. So thank you again for, for making it here. One thing that I find is our experiences as immigrants shape how we interact, how we eventually relate with the community some people if they had it rough and tough and maybe not very positive they sometimes might transfer that into their relationship with the community but you you've had it tough of course i mean going through all that it wasn't easy for you but yet you apply a lot of that experience into how you operate uh, Osuji and Smith. Yeah. So tell me about how your experience as an immigrant has shaped not just hiring but diversity in your firm because i know your firm is diverse i have checked your website and it is a very diverse firm so how has your experience you know as an immigrant and all the interactions you you had you know going through the system how has that shaped your day-to-day good question you know when mr smith gave me a chance i, I tried my best to rationalize his decision but i couldn't right not like i had a godfather i had someone that was speaking on my behalf in fact, he was looking for one student and he had hired someone. But before he hired a person, he had already reached out to me to meet. So he just wanted to check the box that, you know, that, that he would meet with me. And we eventually met. And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to make a crazy decision. Hire two people, right? This someone that was not even hiring anyone in the past other than a few, a few folks. So that to me was a powerful experience. The fact that a white man in his 70s that had no connections whatsoever to Africa. It's not like he did some missionary work in Africa. And 
communication was even a bit tacky at an interview, but still he could tell that the person sitting across from him had the drive and it was going to be a positive gamble on his part. So that experience is very, very powerful um, for me. And coupled with the experience of growing up and my older siblings stepping in regularly to help me. Like I told you, I, I stayed with my depressed yeah. uh, for a few time. And then my oldest brother sponsored me to Canada. I see myself as product of the community mm. and beneficiary of help. So those are the experiences that motivate me in my decision-making. I focus a lot on mentorship. I focus a lot on helping others grow and get better. I could easily hire experienced lawyers in the firm. That way I don't even have to look at their work. You know, they just do their thing. I could be anywhere in the world, but I've mm. chosen to hire younger lawyers so that they can benefit from mentorship and all of that. And my experience as well, growing up, has impacted on the way I see work. I don't see... My work has just work. I see my clients as real people mm. with real problems, looking for real assistance. And the money comes second. One of my students was so amazed how I have turned down a few clients in, in the past simply because they would pay me more than they would get from the other side. Mm. I was able to tell them, look, at the end of this journey, there's going to be one winner and that winner is going to be charged. And I don't like that. I will end up getting paid more than you're ever going to get from the other side. And to prevent them from spending good money in pursuit of bad money, I tell them the truth. And if you go to my Google reviews, you could just see, you know, that reflecting in people's experiences with the firm of honesty, right? So, mm. You know, we're involved in the legal profession where, unfortunately, there's so many arrogant people in the profession. There's so many considered arrogant people and people that take away humanity from the practice of law. So when you introduce humanity into the practice of law, I see people as people that have made mistakes and they're just looking to fix these mistakes at, you know, for the least amount of money possible. When you start having that perspective that we're actually in the service industry, it's so easy uh. to stand out. The legal profession is a profession where it is so, so easy to stand out. You know, a client reached out to me the other day because she had asked her previous lawyer to explain to her what it meant to go to a special application because the lawyer had reached out to her that the next step was to file a special application. And she, asked, and she asked her lawyer, what does that mean? The lawyer said, Google it. Wow. And this is not an isolated story. You know, this happens all the time. So you find yourself in that space. It's so easy to stand out. Once you introduce the basic form of humanity, honesty, looking out for these folks, not judging them, making sure that you understand that you're in the service industry. It is so easy to stand out. No, thank you. Thank you very much, Charles. Yeah. It seems like you're very intentional about building a very diverse firm. Is that correct to say? 
Yes, very intentional, yes. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. In my own little way, I want to show the world that, you know, color doesn't matter. You know, mm. heritage doesn't matter so much. Even even if it matters, it matters in a positive way. <laughs> and the opportunity I have at Ossidian Smith is an opportunity to show the world that when people of different backgrounds come together, they can actually make magic happen, mm. right? And this is the journey of Osujan Smith. Even the name Osujan Smith connotes uh, the confluence of two two major cultures, right? Um, you know, two people. Jim is seventy nine, eighty years old. Yeah, I'm thirty three, and and wow. you can see the age gap between the two of us. And and then coupled with the fact that he's a white man. I'm a black man raised in a completely different climb. He was raised in a completely different climb. And here we are building something so beautiful, right? And and it, and it doesn't matter anymore that he's a white man. It doesn't matter anymore that I'm a black man, right? And that is what I'm trying to expand on. You know, I have Indians, I have Koreans, I have Chinese, I have, I just hired a Portuguese, I have Spanish, I have Nicaraguan, I have all these people in the firm, working together. In fact, I even have the transgender in the firm, oh. you know? Yeah. You know, so, and and it just happens that all of these have become artificial devices, mm. these things that people focus on so much. They're all artificial. Because when we come together and we're focusing on providing compassionate legal services and focusing on things that really matter, you realize that the fact that my last name is Usuji begins to matter less. And that is the, the story behind what I'm building. You know, Sujan Smith. It's very intentional. Yeah. My goodness, what a story, <laughs> Charles. Okay, what we're going to talk about uh, right now, mm-hmm. it's about um, people out there. Mm-hmm. You've alluded to it a bit, but I want to get very specific uh, in terms of racism. Mm-hmm. So race issues will always be there. You spoke right now about how you're trying to go beyond that. And you say if people are good at what they do, race begins to matter less and less. But before you get to that point where you can prove yourself, how have you navigated the issue of race as a Black man in Canada? And what advice would you have for people, especially Black people, right? Because, I mean, it's obvious that you're Black, so it's easy to discriminate against Black right, people. Right. So what advice would you have for Black immigrants who move to a different country and how should they navigate that very complex um, scene? Absolutely. Um, let's not kid ourselves, right? Racism is is here. You know, it's, it's always been here. You know, the, the bottlenecks presented by racism are, are there. Um, if your Caucasian counterpart is putting in 50%, you better put in 150%. Especially in our profession where reputation matters. Sometimes you have no idea how the name behind the letter makes a difference. Just because of a certain name is on the letter, the other side is taking the demands in that letter more seriously than they would if otherwise. Interesting. So it is there, but there are things as a Black person, newcomer, immigrant, there are things you need to do to diminish or reduce the impact of 
these systemic issues. And one of them is, first of all, recognizing that ESF. Don't be naive about it. Okay. Recognize that ESF. And you don't eliminate it by being born here. Because even if you're second, third, fourth generation, that is still there, right? Hmm. Um, so that recognition is the first step. Then the, the second step is that should be a fire to your belly to work harder than anyone else. Hmm. Right now, we are not even looking for work anymore in the front. This is a firm that is run by a, a, a man born in Nigeria. But we are so swamped. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. My calendar for May is completely booked up. So people are now booking into the weekends or, the, or June if they really want to talk to me. Wow. How is that possible? Because people now know that I can add value to their lives. Because basically, even though somebody doesn't like the color of your skin, doesn't like the way you sound, but they cannot help it. You're the only person that can help them. Because mm. they've, they've heard so much about you. You've helped their, their mom, you've helped their sister. They cannot help it. They may hate you for what you represent, but they cannot help it. But still pay you to help them because they know that you can help them. So in as much as all of these issues exist, the more you're able to add value to people's lives, the less important they become. It's gotten to a point where I don't feel it anymore because before anyone reaches out to my firm, they've looked me up. Okay. However, you know, there are certain times when I could still experience, um, you know, some, some clients expressing some reluctance in a client asking me, Oh, Charles, how come your, your, your name is not on this document? Is that even legal? Why would a client ask me if what I presented to them is legal? Wow. I'm a lawyer, and the client is asking me if what I've done is even legal. <laughs> right? You know, l- last month, a client called me on the phone and said, Charles, why should I hire you? Mm-hmm. So I, I flipped it. I was like, why did you call me? And then he started going about how he's you know, read about my accolades and awards and all that. And, and he still posed the question, why should you hire me? I told him to give me 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, we were both laughing. You know, he was so comfortable. And at the end of the day, he hired the firm. And he apologized profusely for you know, the, the remark that he made at the very beginning. Now... Despite the fact that these accolades are there, some people still need you to prove to them that you can deliver. Mm. Again, this is an offshoot of, of bias, right? Offshoot of people thinking that maybe you're not good enough unless you show otherwise. So they are there, but they become less apparent and they occur less with you adding value to to what you do and this is why it's important for newcomers especially professionals to sing their own praises okay talk about your accomplishments um if you get an award celebrate yourself put it out there build credibility build legitimacy because there's so many things against you know there's so many things stacked up against you right um if there are no third parties that are vouching for your credibility third parties vouching for your success and how much work you've done for them how would people that already have these biases how would they overcome their biases to hire you, mm, right? Mm. Part of our culture is to um, not celebrate ourselves. 
and we think that is humility. That is not humility. <laughs> <laughs> that is humility, right? Yeah. You, know, you get an award, celebrate yourself, talk about your accomplishments, talk about the, the value you've added to people's life, ask people to leave Google reviews. These are the things that will help build that objective credibility and you know, get you ahead. We're, we're almost at the end of this uh, this conversation, uh, but there are two very important things I need to touch on, uh, Charles. One of them will be some of the challenges you have faced personally, right? I think we'll talk about that briefly. And the other will be what your advice would be. I know you've dropped series of nuggets throughout this conversation. You have dropped mm-hmm. really, really um, sound advice to our listeners. But but I, I like to pose that question because it's like, this is it. What is that thing or two things that you would you know advise people who are listening? Uh, what should they do? So the first one will be, what are some of the challenges you've faced? And what are the things you've done to overcome those challenges? And then we'll talk about the advice you leave for our listeners. Absolutely. One of the challenges would be self-doubt, right? You're moving from one country to the other, and there's so many questions at the back of your mind. Would you be accepted? Um, have you made the wrong decision to leave your comfort zone? Mm. Um, how far can you go? You know, so all those questions at the back of your mind. I remember my first three months at Summit Law Office. It was horrible. It was horrible. I didn't feel I belonged. You know, I had confidence issues. I remember one time I visited my brother. He could tell, because he's been here longer than, than I have. He, 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 he knew right away, looking at me, that I was facing some existential. Imposter <laughs> <laughs> syndrome. Imposter <laughs> syndrome. And... He may have forgotten that he told me this. He said, um, Chibuke, that's my, my Igbo name. Okay. He said, very soon, everybody's going to be coming to you for answers. Wow. He said this to me three months into my articles. Wow. You know, yeah. And lo and behold, here we are, right? So self-doubt was a major challenge. But some of the things that I did, you know, connecting with mentors and, you know, running to them whenever I needed their help, and reminding myself of the victories. You know, sometimes, despite how far you've come, something happens and you still think, oh my goodness, this is it. Mm. They will know that you're a fraud. They will find <laughs> out who you truly are. <laughs> you know, but I think I've come to a place where the faith I have in my process, the faith I have in my capacity would ultimately overcome any challenge that comes my way. When COVID happened, I wasn't shaking at all. Mm. I wasn't shaking at all. And it happens that we've hired over eight employees since COVID started. Look at that. From last year to now, we've hired over eight employees and we've met the most money. And we've, you know, before COVID, we're doing maybe 10 new files a month. Now we're doing about 60. Wow. <laughs> what a growth. Yeah. And we're looking at um, a new location, you know, before the end of the year, because we're, we've run our capacity. We're on our capacity. So this is all attributable to that indefatigable faith in yourself and faith in your tribe of supporters 
and making sure that your your head is focused on the right things. This is not um you know get rich quick scheme. Mm. This journey started years back, you know. And then the second segment of your question would be what are the, what are the advice, right? The, the pieces yeah. of advice. I mean, I think over the course of the conversation, I've kind of spoken to a few things people yeah. should do. Talk about mentoring and being very intentional about mentorship. Find someone that is someone that is related to your field, not just any kind of mentor. And find mentors outside your, inside within your community and outside of your community, right? Mm. But not just within your community, but outside of your community. This is how you can access um, different people. Then um, integrity, I've talked about that. Make sure that you can be trusted. Mm. No matter how little the responsibility is, even if you are the receptionist, even if you are um, volunteering, make sure that you can be trusted. In this time and age, people don't have patience for individuals with questionable character. And if you're a person of questionable character, you will not go far. I can guarantee you that you will not go far. Sooner or later, um, your misconduct will catch up with you. Um, And then, you know, focus on on adding value to, to, to your life. It's so easy to hide behind your color to justify or explain away a decision to lose your employment or to lose an opportunity you hide behind the color of your skin you know people that look like you are also making progress true you know so sometimes you have to work on what you're bringing to the table then people's skills is very very critical very very important in this part of the world as an employer myself i hire people that i like i just hire it i hire people that i like you know, someone that is not that smart they would pick up eventually. But if someone that I don't like, it's going to be very difficult to work with that person, you know. So people's skills are very important. And then while reaching out to mentors and individuals, make sure that the connection is sincere. You know, it, it was so easy, Stanley, to say yes to you for this podcast because I remember your first message to me was, was it 2018, 2019? Yes. You know, you slid in and you told me how you followed me and how impressed and all of that. I left it at that. You know, you weren't doing that for a particular end or for a particular goal. You could just tell that you were sincerely appreciative of my journey and you commented on that. You know, this is lacking in so many communications that I see on, on LinkedIn or in other spaces where somebody reaches out, hello, Charles, boom, I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want that. <laughs> so, you know, when you reach out to people, try to understand their journey. Don't tell them what you want. Everybody wants something. We don't want to hear yours for now. <laughs> <laughs> I can also tell you what I want. You know, be honest in the conversation, in, in the connection. Don't be transactional. Mm. Um, even if you're looking for articles, you're looking for job, don't say it. You don't need to say it. You know, hear me out first. Ask me how I'm doing, how I'm managing the business amid COVID-19. Ask about a particular interview, ask about a particular question, 
take it offline. You know, when we talk, ask me how I got to where I am, the questions that you posed to me today. And ultimately, I'll be the one to ask you, where are you? Where are you in your journey right now? Mm. Tell me, uh, what are you looking for? Um, are you working for someone? Are you on, on your own? Boom, here you are. The connection is, is, is established, right? So it's very, very important in as much as some people could be could allow their the desperation to overshadow their communication. But it's very, very important to be honest in these connections. Those are the ones that lead to um, positive outcomes. Wow. Thank you, Charles. You're very welcome. Yeah. Appreciate that. Appreciate that so much. The last thing we're going to do, right, for those who do not know, Charles is an award-winning lawyer. Charles, I can't even begin to mention at least all the awards you've you've received. And you're just, what, 33? Charles is just 33. And he's done so much in a legal practice, not just in in Alberta, but all through Canada. Recently, you you won the um, Immigrant Services Canada Award in December of 2020, right? Yeah. For 135s. And you just keep getting these awards so what what i want to do is i want our listeners to hear about your firm tell us a bit more about the cgm smith okay so the full service um, general law firm we focus on employment law um, civil litigation business family a little bit of estate planning so people preparing their wills personal injury motor vehicle accidents um, just google cgm smith and you'll find us and see what we do yeah no, thank you very much, Charles. I do appreciate you taking this time to speak with us and our listeners. We're very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Stanley. You have a very busy professional life yourself, but you're creating this platform for people um, that are looking for inspiration, right? So that is that is very nice and selfless of you. So thank you. Thank you very much, Charles. And that concludes today's show. I hope you found my conversation with Charles engaging and insightful. And hopefully you were able to pick up a thing or two. Please check back on the Immigrant Story Podcast for more episodes. I am your host, Stanley Opar. Till then, stay safe.